This is the Room Now podcast. It's August the 5th, 2022, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This is about the great unknowns. Let's begin with a little tale of today. I was giving grand rounds for UT Southwestern talking about seven ways to diagnose arthritis and a great rheumatologist and better friend, Dr. Catherine Dow, asked me the question about the issue of waiting, the issue of the unknown, meaning do you need to make a diagnosis right out of the gate and how important is it to wait? And boy, is that not like one of the key things about rheumatology? You've got time on your side. You can have some serial evaluations. You can slowly get into a plan. You don't need to hit a home run. I mean, nobody's, you know, 12 inches dilated and nobody's bleeding. And usually you can get around to the right diagnosis, if not first visit, the first few. And yet there's some people that you really aren't going to know the diagnosis on for quite a while. And you're still going to be left with symptom management. So again, I think that's one of the smart things about rheumatology is the patience that's involved. Um, So knowing a lot of information and having experience tells you that it's okay to live in the gray zone sometimes. But then we don't like that. And for that, we get information. For that, we look at Room Now or listen to the podcast. This week, the great hopes of vitamins and vitamin D to the great big mess that is the gout to the great unknown of CSA. CSA? What the heck is CSA? Well, it's part of that constellation of the great unknowns prior to developing rheumatoid arthritis. Back in the day, when I was learning from Fred Wolf and others, we were kind of calling this um, undifferentiated arthritis or undifferentiated arthralgias, early disease. But they weren't yet diagnosed as RA. They didn't yet have synovitis. So then the more in vogue term has been preclinical RA. And then a lot of centers have used this term in their research called clinically suspect arthralgia because they just have arthralgias and you have a suspicion based on who they are and how they present that they may progress. Um, An interesting study uh, published in Rheumatology, over 500 patients, um, consecutive patients with clinically suspect arthralgia were assessed And they, in this particular report, looked at the influence of educational um, attainment, how high they went in their education uh, and what it may be associated with. And they showed that low education levels were were associated with an increased risk of developing inflammatory arthritis, hazard ratio 2.3. It was also associated with subclinical inflammation on MR, uh, and all of these were independent of BMI and smoking. We do know that low education levels are risk factors for worse disease and progression of disease, but this may be one of the first reports showing that may also be associated with the risk of disease. Um, And why is that important? Well, someone has to tell me why having a low education level um, or socioeconomic status does translate to greater risk. And it's not access to care. Um, And it's not, um, well, it's hard to say what it is, but it is what it is. Low education levels are a bad risk factor. Um, I tried to make the case with no substantiation, no evidence, 
that maybe these are risk factors for microbiome changes. Uh, and maybe that predisposes. But this is a, an important thing. It's one thing we don't ask about. Few, two things we don't ask about in rheumatology is depression. We should ask more about that. We should probably know to a much greater extent what the education level of our patients is. I think a real interesting concept that has emerged in the last few years, the last few ACRs and ULARs, is the difference between men and women when it comes to spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis. It's a nice review in Nature Rheumatology um, where they review that, showing that women are more likely to have peripheral arthritis. They certainly have more pain, more fatigue, poorer function, lower quality of life measures, um, and they are less likely to show x-ray damage compared to men. Men are more likely to have axial disease, especially with more severe cutaneous psoriasis. But the bottom line is that women are very different than men, and they tend to have poorer outcomes, and they need to be approached differently. And these authors talk about the need for maybe greater psychosocial support or job modification or um, different pain management schemes. We're going to evolve into a different approach between men and women, at least with PSA and spondyloarthritis. There's a lot of blow up on uh, Twitter. Um, Eric Topol, Lenny Calabrese, Catherine Dow, others talking about Evershield. As you know, it's pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, for against getting COVID. The data is pretty clear. When administered, it lowers the risk of symptomatic illness, COVID-19 illness, by more than 70%. Uh, it is approved for use in the immunosuppressors, an estimated 7,000 people out there who may uh, qualify for this. But thus far, with all the drug that's been approved, less than 25% of it has been used in, el in, in the eligible population. And this does include some of your patients. And I think there's a cry for greater use of this. The question is, I don't think we have a lot of exposure um, and, and or not, not that cl clear about who should get it. Clearly, your patients with active disease who are on rituximab. We still are in the era of COVID. Yeah, BA5 is um, much more virulent, but much less likely to give you um, hospitalization and severe disease. But if it's more virulent, you're getting many, many, many more infections, but a smaller percentage, it's almost the same number of people going in the hospital or having severe disease. That cannot happen to your patients who are very immunosuppressed. And we do know that the greatest risk amongst our patients are those that are taking rituximab. So rituximab, autoimmune disease, the high activity. Um, I don't view most of my patients as being immunosuppressed. Um, I think I view them as being very well controlled by anti-inflammatory therapy, not immunosuppressive therapy. So maybe you'd think about that differently. Uh, Evershield, think about it. Um, the recovery trial is an important trial. Um, a lot of things were actually done in the recovery trial. In, in this recent report, they looked at the baricitinib outcomes as far as hospitalized COVID-19 patients. And, you know, baricitinib was the, one of the early EUAs for COVID-19, along with remdesivir. I thought, looking at the data, the remdesivir effect was small, and the baricitinib contribution that was greater. And the subsequent trials that came out about baricitinib looked good. But the data from the recovery trial... Over 8,000 patients with hospitalized COVID showed that baricitinib did have significantly fewer deaths, but it was 12% versus 14% on placebo. This particular paper in Lancet says that, gee, it doesn't seem all that great. 
But if you look at the overall risk reduction, this study along with others, it looks like it may be as much as a 20% risk reduction for people who would hospitalize COVID-19. That's your drug, baricitinib. Remind them, those people, who the experts are at JAK inhibitors. That would be you. Who the experts are at biosimilars? Well, it might be rheumatologists, maybe not rheumatologists in the United States. We've got a lot of biosimilars that have been approved but been delayed through a multitude of reasons. Right now in the United States, we only have really infliximab uh, versions of uh, uh, those biosimilars along with several rituximab biosimilars. And the others lay in wait. This particular tweet that I put up this week said, however, by 2020, a mere eight years from now, you're going to have a lot of biosimilars. And here's just to name several beyond rituximab and fliximab. Adalimumab, etanercept, golimumab, abatacep, tocilizumab, ustekinumab, denosumab, and eculizumab. Again, maybe the game is going to change significantly when we get around to all these biosimilars being available. As you know, the vital study we talked about a few weeks ago, study of vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, looks like it may lower the risk of autoimmune disease, although it wasn't clear which autoimmune disease, and individually, it didn't lower the risk of of, of RA or lupus specifically. But autoimmune disease overall, the vital study was a study undertaken to see if supplemental vitamin D and um, omega-3s would lower cancer or cardiovascular risk. Turns out it did not. So now we're looking at sub-studies of this, and the recent sub-study uh, shows that vitamin D fails to lower the risk of fracture. This was done in otherwise generally healthy adults who had normal vitamin D levels and no hormonal problems, but when they looked at um, uh, fracture risk versus placebo, it was not significant. I threw in there another recent publication that also showed no significant reduction in fraction risk by vitamin D. Um, those of you who know me know that I'm somewhat of a vitamin D naysayer. By the way, I take vitamin D every day. I don't measure my levels. Um, I don't think vitamin D is a magical drug. I think it's an important vitamin. I think everyone should take it. And clearly people with bone disease should be supplemented. Patients with autoimmune disease probably should be supplemented. But the evidence of vitamin D fixing anything it's kind of scant. It's associated with everything wrong, is it not? But the evidence that fixes something, gosh, I wish it were more. I wish I had a better test for methotrexate toxicity. You know, there are tests out there that will look at RBC polyglutamates and, and use that as a measure. This particular study that I posted on um, those assessments in Crohn's patients shows that the risk factors Um, shows that age, lower GFR, increasing age, lower GFR, and subcutaneous use of methotrexate was all associated with significant increases in RBC polyglutamate levels uh, for methotrexate. By the way, those three factors, low GFR, increasing age, um, sub-Q methotrexate, all risk factors for more toxicity. I'm not advocating for measuring polyglutamates uh, and whatnot. I'm, ad- I'm advocating for the risk factors for methotrexate toxicity, people who you want to be more mindful of, the elderly, people with declining renal function. And again, you're more likely to cause toxicity when you give it parenterally or split-dose oral. Um, it just gives you more drug and you should get more symptoms. 
Okay, what else do we have? Um, RA and ILD, um, you know, what are you going to do? There's not a lot of, you know, we don't have good evidence that there's any single drug that's really effective in this situation. This particular study, I think it was out of Spain, was a, just a, uh, an open label single center, I think, 57 patients with RAILD, and they looked at you know, how bad the ILD was before the disease. Half of them were getting worse before they got abatacep. That was the intervention here, and after a median follow-up of 27 months, you know, 72% were stabilized or improved. Only 23% worsened and 5% died. So that's 28% who had a bad outcome, 72% had a good outcome. RAILD generally does not have good outcomes. It is usually progressive. So this is encouraging, albeit biased and uncontrolled. Um, we need more studies. There are a few studies like this out there. I, show, I throw this up as a representative of this. By the way, using abatacept did not change overall FVC, DLCO values, ILD itself, was associated with worse, uh, was, wor was worse and progressive with higher disease activity uh, and when the FVC and DLCO did worsen. So again, um, that might be an option. For me, it's, I've, I've always considered um, just aggressive management of the disease, but there's a disconnect between disease control and lung progression. I tend to use rituximab in these situations. I might want to add abatacept based on this kind of data, but we need more research on this. A Korean study that looked at claims analysis of over 11,000 seropositive RA patients showed that um, the risk that RA increases the risk of incident herpes zoster or shingles. Uh, and they looked at the risk associated with biologics and tofacitinib. Uh, this is a study of, of those patients between 2011 and 2019. 14% overall had incident herpes zoster. Compared to other biologics like abatacept, tofacitinib gave a two and a half fold higher rate of zoster infections and recurrence, almost a fourfold increased risk. So what do you take away from this? We already know tofa increases the risk, but this gives you a relative risk is number one. You should also know that Korea has a much higher rate of zoster infections than we do maybe here in the U.S. So that's sort of helpful in you know, sort of teasing out some of these um, tidbits. And the last thing is the average person on the street or in the mall or in the library who gets zoster, the infection itself may be self-immunizing and they are less likely to get it in the future unless they're immunosuppressed. This study says that our patients are more likely to get it again and that, if anything, maybe a JAK inhibitor um, Therapy might up that risk even further. Point being, if you're going to use a JAK inhibitor, immunize against zoster. Use the Shingrix vaccine. And even in people who are under 50, I would push hard for it. Oral surveillance, the 1133 study on the safety of tofacitinib continues to deliver more tidbits of information. In this particular report, they looked at infection rates in that study, as you know, um, nearly 5,000 patients followed for nearly four years, um, received either, and these are high-risk patients over the age of 50, they received either the usual dose or high-dose tofacitinib or a TNF inhibitor. In this study, they looked at infection rates, and hands down, in this population, again, over 50, with risk factors, cardiac risk factors, 
there were more overall infections, there were more serious infections, more non-serious infections with tofacitinib. That's somewhat sobering. The SIE risk um, was um, either with usual dose tofacitinib, 17% higher, hazard ratio 1.17, or with higher dose tofacitinib, hazard ratio 1.48, or a 48% increased risk. Um, SIEs were even higher when you were using high-dose TOFA, 10 BID versus usual dose, also in the elderly. The other risk factors for these uh, serious infections were things we've talked about in the past, age, prednisone use, and comorbidities. Uh, a lot of FDA action this past week, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States approved a topical phosphodiesterase 4, PDE4 inhibitor called Roflum. Elast, Roflum Elast, and that's just the generic name. The trade name is Zorvi, S-O-R-Y-V-E. It's a top 3.3% topical cream used for plaque psoriasis in, in kids and adults over age 12. We hope the adults are over age 12, um, and that's a requirement to receive the drug being over age 12. So that's a nice new application from the FDA. The FDA has extended the use of ustekinumab, Stellara, for use in kids with psoriatic arthritis. Those are kids over the age of six years. Um, and it's important because actually uh, it's estimated that as much, of, uh, as much as 6% of all kids with inflammatory arthritis can be diagnosed with pediatric psoriatic arthritis. So this is a nice new advance. The FDA has uh, ex um, and not, not the FDA, the EMA in Europe has actually approved the use of upadacitinib or Rinvoke for adults who have active non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis uh, at a dose of 15 milligrams a day. This is based on the results of the uh, phase three select axis um, two study that involved non-radiographic axial spa patients that was published in Lancet and so they we also put up the results of the Lancet study which I thought were pretty impressive again this is non-radiographic axial spa of the select uh, select axis two uh, study it was a phase three trial of 314 adults who had non-radiographic axial spa either getting placebo or um, uh, upadacitinib uh, and the primary endpoint in here was the ASAS 40 and the results at week 14, 45% responders versus 23% with placebo, highly significant, no major new safety signals. This is the data upon which the EMA has approved UPA for use in non-radiographic axial spa. You may have seen this other report this week about um, a UK database of like um, 62,000 gout patients that looked at the association between cardiac events and gout activity. Uh, and they showed that um, in the gout patients who had cardiovascular events versus those who did not have cardiovascular events, that cardiovascular events were associated with a higher rate of gout flares in the 60 days prior to their cardiovascular event. Again, that's a, um, an odds ratio that was almost double, 1.93. It was also significant when you looked at 60 to 120 days prior to the cardiovascular event, where now the odds ratio is 1.57. These data suggest that 
prior flares may predispose to cardiovascular events. Oh, by the way, when you do the analyses with non-steroidals and steroids, drugs known to increase risk of cardiovascular events did not change the numbers. So this was not related to drug use, drugs that would be used to treat acute gout flares. This was related probably to inflammation. Hence the importance of prompt and complete control of gout flares when they occur. Rheumatologists, you've got to spread the word on how to diagnose and manage gout. You know this better than anyone. Lastly, something which you may not have advocated for, I certainly didn't, and that was krill oil. I, you know, I thought it was okay, it's another more expensive um, homeopathic uh, over-the-counter supplement. Um, this study, over 300 patients, non-obese adults, 40 to 65 years of age with mild to moderate OA, not end-stage OA, six-month double-blind randomized control trial of krill oil versus placebo, significant increases in the krill group, treated group, as far as their omega-3 index, better knee pain scores, um, uh, uh, the treatment differences were minus five, I think it's on a 10 scale, or I mean it's on a 100 scale. Knee stiffness was also significant, um, and but what didn't uh, was not significant or different between the groups was NSAID use lipids, um, safety labs, or inflammatory markers. Again, these patients were randomized to receive four grams of krill oil a day, and it did seem to help those with mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis. I thought that was really quite interesting. Let's end with a case. Um, this is from Dr. Eve Scopolitis. Um, Dr. Scopolitis. Hi, Dr. Eve Scopolitis here from Optional Clinic in New Orleans. I have a patient that I need help with, a 38-year-old kindergarten teacher with ulcerative colitis. She has pancolitis, who also has a positive ANA and a positive double-stranded DNA, presumably due to previous use of TNF inhibitors which was started for her colitis at a time when she did not have any joint pain. These inhibitors uh, did not help her uh, colitis, and she had to be switched to Antivio, which controlled her GI disease very, very well, but she developed joint pain and swelling with uh, accompanying elevated parameters of inflammation on uh, the Antivio. Uh, she has had intolerance to azathioprine in the past, and um, I started her on methotrexate. I went as high as 30 milligrams uh, parenterally, which is the first time I've ever used so much methotrexate, but she still is not responding. She only responds to aspirations and moderate to high dose of steroids. Anyway, her GI doctor does not want to switch to a JAK inhibitor because she's doing so well GI-wise and had, she had so much trouble con controlling her in the past. Um, I'm asking, can we use Antivio plus a TNF inhibitor, or what is the, what do you think about that combination, and is there any data to support it? I found one or two articles, but they weren't very impressive. Thanks, Dr. Scopolitis. Um, four issues here, right? One is ANA positivity. Two is, what's the diagnosis? Um, three is um, not responding to methotrexate and steroids. Uh, and the fourth is, can you use JAX or can you use combination biologics? 
So one, she correctly points out that your patients, um, doesn't really matter, matter whether it's PSA, ulcerative colitis, or RA, treated with uh, TNF inhibitors, many of them are going to become ANA positive, and it'll mean absolutely nothing. That's really important here. I don't think the ANA positivity has got anything to do with this story. Okay, She didn't mention anything else that made this sound like lupus. Second, you know, the patient um, is doing well with Intivio, that's Vitalizumab, the integrin um, targeting agent that works very well in colitis. Um, but you know there's been reports, both in ACR and ULAR, of Vitalizumab-induced worsening of spondoarthritis and of patients who had uh, seronegative arthritis as well. Not large-scale reports, but it's, there's, it's out there, meaning that the Vitalizumab may control the gut really well, but may not be enough for the joints. And you might need other therapy here. I think non-response to methotrexate sounds almost psoriatic arthritis-like here. Um, and can you use a JAK inhibitor here? Yes, you could. It would really be combination um, novel therapy use, not combination biologics. She's on a biologic, and then the JAK inhibitor would be a DMART, just like you would use methotrexate or sulfasalazine or azathioprine or leflunamide. So I would advocate for combination therapy here. Um, in these cases, I have used um, um, mostly, in my experience, sulfasalazine and leflunamide. Um, they would have already been tried by, uh, by others on methotrexate and azathioprine. And I've done better with leflunamide than sulfasalazine. Sulfasalazine is an antifolate um, therapy much like methotrexate. So I would recommend a trial of leflunamide if you can do six to 12 weeks of that to find out if they're, if if they're going to do better. But you may very well have to resort to combination aggressive expensive medicine, meaning continue the vetalizumab, don't stop that which is working. And you know, if you were going to just give this patient a JAK inhibitor to replace the vetalizumab, you'd have to use very high doses of the JAK inhibitor. I think, for instance, upadacitinib, the starting dose is 45 milligrams, and then you wean down to 30. That's still much higher than we use in RA or, or PSA. So, but here, the patient may do well with just standard low-dose JAK inhibitor therapy. 10 milligrams of tofus, 11 milligrams of tofacitinib, 15 uh, milligrams of uh, of of upadacitinib or two milligrams of baricitinib. Or you could go with the higher dose. How are you going to get that paid for? And should you use it? Well, first off, you get that paid for by saying the patient, one, has ulcerative colitis, and that's the vetalizumab, and two, the patient has, call whatever kind of arthritis you want, inflammatory arthritis, RA, PSA, and that's the, ind that's the indication for the second agent. I'm sorry it's expensive, but it's needed. The other issue is, should you be using combination? Is there a downside to this? And again, there are no trials here, but there are trials that have recently completed. The VEGA trial was an ulcerative colitis trial presented at the ECHO meeting. It's a GI meeting in February of 2022. And that was a combination trial of golimumab and gaselcomab, a TNF inhibitor and a 23 inhibitor. And those patients did well. Both drugs worked, but they work better when put in combination without added toxicity. So again, on difficult cases like that, you may have to add in another expensive therapy or another biologic. 
What would I use? Again, I would, if I could get away with it, there was no urgency, I would use low-dose steroids and try six to eight weeks of leflunamide. And if no budge, then I would dispel with that and get a JAK inhibitor improved first. Uh, I would use that over a TNF inhibitor here, but you could do that just as well. And I don't think there would be much in the way of added toxicity. Again, someone who has ongoing inflammation is at risk for serious infection. Um, the combination of the biologics probably is not going to increase that risk than what the inflammation is doing already on its own. So you have to explain this to the patient and let them acknowledge the risk that's involved when you have to get more aggressive. Hope you found this useful. We'll talk next week on the podcast. Stay well.